new here, we've been walking through 1 John, uh, passage by passage, week by week, and so the place we land today is chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, okay? So let's, let's read this passage, 1 John 5, starting verse 13, let's read it together, and then we'll pray and dive in, okay? Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked him. It's God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for allowing us to gather together around it right now. God, please speak to us. Father, I recognize all the things, or at least some of the things, God, that are going on around us in the invisible realm. You, God, by your Spirit at work, comforting the souls of the saints, drawing lost people to yourself, exposing and convicting false converts. God, this is all work that you do, God, as we meditate on your word together. Father, I ask you, please. Please, God, unless all these things happen, in that realm in which we cannot see, then our time together is in vain. So please, God, please follow. Holy Spirit, move. For your glory, for your namesake, for the good and building up of your people, God, I pray that you would move as we meditate together over your word. Lord, this passage today about Assurance of those who are your children. God, I pray that in the place where assurance is supposed to land and our hearts, our hearts cry out to you, Abba Father, God, I pray that you would cause that to land today. That more, even more so than when we walked into this room together, that as we take time over your word and you speak to us, God, that you would you would help us to walk out today. Full of assurance, God, that we belong to you. Fill our hearts with faith and trust and the, with the joy and peace of the assurance that we belong to you, Lord. God, please help us as we come to your word. Open our eyes, God. I pray the same things that we just sang a moment ago, God. Show us your glory, God. Reveal your glory to us through the preaching of your word. We love you, Lord, and we need your help in this time. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. So, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I want, I want you to think through where you fit in these categories that I'm about to mention to you, okay? 
Did you know that it's possible to feel the assurance of salvation subjectively and yet, and yet not possess, not genuinely possess salvation objectively? Did you know that was possible? In other words, you, you feel like everything's fine, everything's going well, I'm going to be okay in eternity, but the reality is, is you're about to bust hell wide open. That's the reality, that can happen. Did you know that it's also possible to be saved, to have, to possess salvation? It's, a, it's an objective fact. And yet, subjectively, you do not feel like everything's okay. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Imagine being in the double grip of God's saving grace. That's what Jesus said, right? Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And my Father's greater than all. No one's able to snatch you out of His hand. You're in the double grip of His grace. And yet you're worried. You're worried about your eternity. You're worried about spending an eternity without Him. That's possible too. And then let me put a third category before you as well. And I think... If you think through all these categories, you think where you land, everybody should be somewhere. Here's a third category. It's possible to be genuinely saved. You are genuinely, you possess salvation. And maybe you don't have worries about going to hell or facing the wrath of God. Maybe that's not your worry. Maybe that's not the depths of it. But you do not have that real felt assurance before God that you belong to Him that makes tears come down your cheeks as you cry out, Abba Father, I'm yours and you're mine. You can have or not have that assurance in different degrees. So where are you at on this? In this book that we're studying, 1 John, it causes us to consider Christian, real Christian assurance. The assurance, the confidence that you are saved, the, the, the assurance that you belong to Him. And this book causes us to think about assurance and true and false conversion. We've noticed that the whole way through this epistle of John. And I want you to think for a second, what are some common views about assurance in the culture in which you live? What are some common views about assurance? One is this. One is... Uh, well, you can never know till you get there, right? You can, you can never truly know if you're saved. You can never have assurance, real assurance of salvation until you get there. We just don't know. Only God knows. That's one mindset. You see that in Catholicism. I see that as I preach the gospel on the street to, to different people over and over again. Man, there's just no way you can know. You just can't know if you're saved, which I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But the verse that we're in today obliterates that idea. I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. Or another way that we see this played out in our culture is an assurance of salvation, but it's only rooted in a mere profession of faith. It's just a mere profession. Just because you say it, you must be saved. I've seen this over and again as we, we you know, maybe go to somebody's house or go door to door and share the gospel. And I ask someone if they're a Christian and they get angry at me. How dare you ask me if I'm a Christian? And how dare you ask me, how do I know that I'm saved? Or, or are you sure? Or do you have certainty that you're saved? How dare you ask me that? Didn't I profess that I'm saved? Isn't everyone around here a Christian? And that's the mindset 
about assurance. Those are the mindsets that are in our culture. But according to the passage that we're in, biblically, you can have assurance of salvation. In fact, God wants His children, and that's glorious, God wants His children to have assurance of salvation. So here's a question. Has, has your person, has your assurance ever been shaken? Why was your assurance shaken? Was it false teaching? Was it your own, your own failure? What happened? But has your assurance of salvation ever been shaken? And if not shaken, have you felt the reality of real assurance before God? And what I mean is, do you know that you belong to Him in the way that He wants you to know it? Maybe you're not afraid of hell. Maybe that, maybe that, that's settled for you. But do you know, do you know that He is your Father? He is your Abba Father. Do you know that? You have certainty of that. And that comes at different degrees. And if you're truly a child of God, God wants you to know assurance in the depths of your soul. These things are right to you that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 These things I write to you that you may know you have eternal life. So look at that. Look there at verse 13. Let's answer the question. Who's John writing to and why is he writing to? Who's he writing to and why is he writing to? It says here in verse 13, he's writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe in the name of of the Son of God. So he's writing to people that he loves so much. That he has loving concern for. He loves these people. These are the people over and over again. That he calls that he calls brethren. And he calls beloved. And he calls little children. He loves these people. And I'm, I'm no apostle by any means. But Grace Community Church. I tell you. I know this feeling. I feel this. And I know many of you feel this toward one another. That I love these people. And just like he writes this letter to people whom he loves. That they might know that they belong to him. I feel the same way preaching this this morning. I want you to know. I want you to feel the assurance. That you really are his. These people that he's writing to. That John's writing to in this letter. They've had their assurance shaken. By false teachers. False teachers preaching false things. They've had their assurance shaken as they've seen their friends turn away from the faith and lead Jesus Christ and believe heretical things about Christ. They've been shaken as they've seen men lead their actual friends astray with these claims of having some sort of special revelation and special anointing of the Spirit of God. We've seen this in our letter. And so their assurance has been shaken. So John writes this letter to try to clean this mess up. This happened here. John's readers have been, they've been disturbed. And they don't have the comfort of dealing with these things as if it's just some sort of uh, a far off heresy that they're, they, they read about somewhere. This is in their family. This is among their people, in their church, people leaving, people lost. We see that in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were never truly of us. And so their assurance is being attacked and shaken. And so he writes this letter with an aim. I want to reestablish their assurance that you belong to God. That you are His. You who are truly in Christ. I want you to compare two things. You got John wrote this letter 
I want you to compare the gospel of John, John's gospel that he wrote, and this first letter, this first epistle that John wrote. Hold your place in 1 John and flip over to John 20. I want you to compare the purposes for which he wrote the gospel and for which he wrote this letter. John chapter 20. Think about this with me. John 20. I'm going to start in verse 30 and read verse 31. Listen to the purpose for the writing of the gospel of John. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's talking about the things written in this book. Verse 31. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Now compare those two. I'm writing these things to you about Christ, this gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is who He said He was, and you might have life in His name. Now why do you write the epistle? I'm writing these things to you. Who already believe in the name of the Son of God. That you might know that you have eternal life. I'm writing these to you that you might believe and have life. And I'm writing this to you, the letter, the epistle. I'm writing this to you that you might know that you believe. That you might know that you have eternal life. The gospel is written to lead people, especially unbelievers, to salvation in Christ. And the letter is written, the epistle is written to believers for their assurance that they belong to Him. The aim of the Gospel of John is to bring people to Christ. The aim of the epistle is to assure people that they belong to Christ. To assure those who have already come that they actually belong to Him. The Gospel of John poses this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And the epistle poses this question. How do you know that you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, says the Gospel of John? The letter says, how do you know? How do you know that you really and truly believed on Him? So think about that question. How do you know? First John's question. How do you know that you believe? Now that's not a silly question. I can hear somebody now saying, saying, what do you mean I know? I just believe. I just do. That's not a silly question. How do you know that you believe? Especially when you consider that multitudes of people are headed toward an eternity in hell because their false profession was a sham. This is not a silly question. How do you know that you believe? And this question is answered in 1 John in at least two ways. How do you know that you believe? It's answered in 1 John in at least two ways. Number one is this. By defining or helping define what is eternal life for us. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things that you might know that you have what? Eternal life. And so 1 John helps us to define what this is, this eternal life. It begins and it ends speaking about the very first verse, the very last verse of this letter, speaking about this eternal life in a way that we don't normally think about. 
In fact, it's clear from this letter that eternal life is not just speaking about the duration of your life or a long life or a life that never ends, but it's speaking about a divine quality of life, the kind of life. This is the life of God in the soul of man, as you've heard me say many times. Let me show you one verse that says something like that. Chapter 3 of 1 John. Chapter 3 of 1 John, if you look at verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Listen to the way it said that. Eternal life abiding in him. This is something that you possess now if you have eternal life. It's not just the duration of your life till the end. But do you have eternal life? Do you possess eternal life in you now? It's the life of God in the soul of man. Not just how long your life is. Now that helps answer this question. Think about it. How do you know that you believe? Well the scripture says, John has said, that those who believe have Eternal life. And so the next question is, do you see the life of God at work in you? Do you see eternal life in you? And so it answers the question, how do you know that you believe? Think about the, the way that changes verses that, that, you, that are common to you. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What's that saying? That's saying, when you see somebody that has put their hope in Christ Jesus, they've got life of God dwelling in them. And that changes things. Now the second way to answer this question, or, or a way that First John this letter answers the question. It's similar, but it's a little more specific. So number two is this. First John gives us a description. A description of what eternal life looks like in a person. You say, well, how do I know if the life of God is in the soul of man? Well, what does eternal life look like in a person? And, and, we, and if you've been here through these teachings, you've heard this over and over again. That there's three tests that are given throughout the letter of First John. You've got the doctrinal test. Which is, has, have your eyes been opened to see the right things about Jesus? Or do you believe false things about Jesus? You believe false things about Jesus is a sure sign that you don't have eternal life. But that your eyes have been opened and you see the right things about Christ. The true doctrine of Christ, the doctrinal test is a sign that you may truly have eternal life. You also have the, the, the second test, the obedience test. That God changes your heart. He makes you a new creation. You find, yourself, you find yourself with a heart for God's word and with a desire to obey God. And then the third test is the love test. You find yourself that, that, that anybody that's passed from death to life loves the brethren. You find yourself loving the people of God when you didn't before. You find yourself drawn to those people. So, so how do you know that question that First John asked? How do you know that you believe? Do you pass the test revealed in God's Word? Revealed in 1 John. So, so I say it again. 1 John 5.13 tells us that this letter is about assurance. These things I write to you that you might know that you have eternal life. It's about reestablishing assurance for people that John loves. He loves them and their assurance has been disturbed and he wants to reestablish it. And this letter does the same thing for us. So, is the assurance of salvation an important issue? Is it an important issue? How important is this issue 
of assurance of salvation? I think a simple way to answer that is it must be very important because the whole letter of God's word in the New Testament is devoted to this theme. So assurance of your salvation must be very important. One preacher said it like this. He said, assurance is not to be underestimated. It's a taste of heaven on earth. Now we're talking about the importance of it, of the way you feel subjective. This is like a taste of heaven on earth. One hymn writer said it like this. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is huge. This is important because assurance is not just some uh, far out, impersonal idea that's out there somewhere. This is real felt experience that if you don't have it, you lack assurance. It's a terrible torment to your soul. But if you have assurance, it leads to joy and peace in Christ Jesus. This is a big deal. If you doubt that, why don't you ask one of your brothers and sisters that struggles and struggles with the assurance of salvation. What kind of torment this brings to their soul. This is important because it's for God's glory. Think about a little child. Imagine a little child that looks to his daddy, but he's starting to doubt. The little child, I'm doubting, I'm struggling, dad, with the fact that you love me. I don't know that you love me. I don't know that I belong here. You know how that catches you. This is real, felt assurance. And the glory that goes to that father whose tri- child trusts him. And, and, and the, the doubt or the, the doubt of that father, the, the demeaning of that father, our father in heaven. And his children don't trust his personal faithfulness. So it's for God's glory. This is about, assurance is about our good. As I said, this is for our good, right? This is, uh, uh, he gives us assurance and it grants joy. In fact, chapter one, verse four, I'll show this verse. These things I write to you that your joy may be full. I write these things that your joy may be full. I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. These things come together that when you know, when you have assurance in Christ that you belong to Him, that you truly are His child, it it results in this joy and this peace. So this is for our good. It's for God's glory. And I'll just say this. there, There are brothers and sisters here today, right now, that I know and that I love, that you struggle with this. You struggle with the assurance of salvation. You You struggle with knowing that you belong to Him. Your sensitive conscience condemns you and you are slow to rest upon His promises. This is important for us. And not only that, I would say this. There are brothers and sisters here that maybe maybe the the, the torments of hell, the thoughts of, of facing an eternal wrath, maybe that doesn't torment you like some, but your assurance is of a very small degree. You remember times where you felt wrapped up in it that you belong to God and your heart truly cried, I have a father, but now you cannot remember the last time you wept just because you belong to Him. There's different degrees of this assurance. And so for every one of us, wherever you land on this scale of assurance, I want you to hear God's word. He says, I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. I want you to know it and I want you to know it deeply. I want you to get it. I want you to have the felt reality, not just the objective truth that you have eternal life, but I want you to feel the reality of that, that you are his and he is yours. 
And so here we come to the end of this letter. We're in 1 John. It's, it's all about these things. And then we come to the end of this letter that's supposed to draw us in. It's the point of the letter, right? It's supposed to draw us in, true believers in, to this kind of assurance. And every believer who's studying this letter is supposed to come to a joy, a joyful, a joy-filled assurance that you pass the test. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to me. Listen to me for a minute. I want to draw that out of us today. I want us to think about that. Where do you land? Are you His or are you not? Are you His or are you not? And I, I want to do this by briefly just summarizing 1 John and the way it talks about these different tests. And remember, the goal of the test is what? That you might know that you might have assurance, and therefore that's my goal in talking about these things in just a moment. So let's just, let's just summarize for a moment these things. And I want you to ask yourself that. Where, where do you land? Are you His? And so let's start with the doctrinal test. Think about it. This doctrinal test, John tells us who the real Christ is. Who the real Christ Jesus is. There's been false things that have happened. People have, have uh, bent the bait of the false Jesus. And they're headed for hell forever. But, but John in this letter lays out for us the true and living Christ that saves sinners. He lays them out for us. And so, and so as I lay this before you. Just a summary of what this letter says about Jesus. I want to ask you. Can you say amen? Can you say that's my savior? Yes indeed. That's the one that I cling to. And if you can, and this is a good sign, this is a good symbol that, that you belong to Him. In 1 John it says that Jesus is the Word of life. Think about that. He's the Word of life and it says He was manifested in this world. Think about it. So He was made, He's the Word of life who was manifested, revealed into this world. He's the Creator of the cosmos. He's the creator and sustainer of all life. You know about any life in this room? He's the creator and the sustainer of it all over the planet, all over this world. That's who he is. He's the word of life manifested into this world. He's the creator that came to his creation. The maker of mountains becomes a man. He comes into this world and takes on human nature. Jesus Full, think about Jesus, full and complete in his godness, and yet fully and completely human at the same time. He's fully God, fully man, coming to the world to rescue. Is this your Savior? No? Is this your Savior? Is that him? Jesus is called in this letter the Son of God. You know what that means? He's called the Son of God. This means He's the Eternal One. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's the second person of the Trinity. He answers to no one. And all creation bows to His will. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Is this your Savior? Can I hear amen? Is this your Savior? Because I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of you, this is your Savior. Jesus is, according to this letter, the Christ. The Christ, which means He's the promised one. He's the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. 
That he might live the perfect human life that no one has lived. He took on flesh that he might die as a substitute in our place. He took on human flesh that he might rise from the grave. Still fully human. Still fully God. But he's king eternal. King who reigns forever. Is this your savior? Yes, sir. The scripture says in 1 John, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Think about that. The blood, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how many? All sin. Name a sin. You can't name it. You're in Christ here. You can't name a sin that he hasn't cleansed you from. Past, present, future. All sin laid upon Him at the cross. And goes on to say, if anyone sins, listen, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. This means at the cross, He was the sin bearer. At the cross, He was the punishment bearer. He took your punishment for you. Is that your Savior? Jesus is the risen Lord, according to, this, according to this letter. He's the risen Lord who conquered death, the grave, and hell. And because of Him, anyone in Christ also conquers death, the grave, and hell. Can you imagine that? Death has no hold on you. The grave means nothing to you anymore because Christ has conquered it all. It says He was manifested. He was manifested. God Almighty manifested in Christ to take away our sins. That's the Lamb of God slaughtered for sinners like me and you. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is what John the Baptist says. At His cross, He was buried under our punishment. And it's like He rose up in His resurrection and cast our, sin, our sins into the depths of the sea. He cast them as far as the east is from the west. Don't you know that that means they are no more? Sin doesn't rear its ugly head. It's dealt with in Christ. Done. Finished is what He said. Is that your Savior? Scripture here in 1 John says that He's the destroyer. Jesus is the, des the destroyer who came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the tempter. The one that holds, the one that blinds, the one that deceives. And Christ came and said it's finished as He destroys every single one of His works. Because of Him, because of Jesus, we can know love. Don't you know that? We don't know love outside of the Savior. But this, by this we know love. By this we know love. That Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Now we know love. Because of this Savior. First John calls Him the Savior of the world. That's massive. Savior of the world. Savior of the world. He waits patiently. He waits patiently now as He's ascended on high as King of the universe. And He waits patiently. But according to 1 John, He will appear again. He will come again. And when He comes again, all of those, you imagine, all of His children, all of the people of God, ushered into what's called fullness of joy forever. Is that your Savior? And it says in 1 John 5, 12, 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. 
Is that your Savior? He who has a son has life. Is he yours? And if he's yours, listen to me. Listen to me. These things are written that you might know. That you have eternal life. You mean that's your Savior? That's the one you trust in? This is written. And I say these things and I preach these things to you. That you might say, yes, He is mine. And yes, I belong to Him. That's my Savior. I have a Father. I cry out to you. And once you know that, just think about it. Think about the other two tests. Think about the obedience test and the love test. Think about it. Don't you see? If you're here and you're in Christ, don't you see that God has done that work in you where all of a sudden you, you, like, you enjoy His Word? And in this, this doesn't mean perfection. First John preaches against perfection. We're not talking about perfection here or you're perfect or nothing ever goes wrong. But don't you know that's God at work in you? That He's changed your heart, that He makes you love His Word, and you find yourself wanting to obey the Word of God. Don't you know that's God at work in you? That you love the people of God, that you want to be around the church of Jesus Christ. That's God doing that in you. And these things, listen, these things are written that you might know that. That you might know that you belong to Him. Amen? Belong to Him? So here's what we do. We come out of 1 John 5.13. And in verse 14, we're given some immediate application. Immediate application comes in verse 14. Look at it. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Did you hear that? Verse 14 is connected to verse 13 by Greek conjunction. So you're supposed to think of verse 13 and then verse 14 flowing out of that. Of, of verse 13 lays it down and verse 14 turns the corner and says, Therefore, and he drives you to your knees in prayer. So it's clear that there's a, there's a clear connection between your felt assurance in Christ Jesus there's a clear connection between that and your prayer life. Your assurance and your prayer life is clearly connected in verse 13 and verse 14. So it's like this. It's like John has brought his readers, including us. He's, he's brought them through this letter. He's brought them to a point of, of, of glorious assurance that they have eternal life. And that they are the children of God. He's brought them through to that place. And then he turns the corner and he says, and here what you, here's what you must do in response to that. Here's how you have to respond to this assurance. In other words, assurance is not just for us to sit on. It's not the point of it. God says something like this. You are mine. You are mine. Don't you get that? You are mine. Now go conquer the world for my glory. And that's the picture of verses 14 through the end of the book. All the way to verse 21. Think about it. You got verse 14 and 15. He says, he says, you, you are mine and I'm yours. Now to your knees in prayer because you've got my ear. You have my ear. I incline my ear to you now. Or verse 16 and 17 says, he, he's assured them already. You are mine. You belong to me. And he says, listen, kill sin in the church. Fight against it. Come against the sin that defiles you. In verse 16 and 17. 
You continue on verse 18 and 19. It just keeps going. You are mine. You belong to me. Now look up at that world that's overtaken by Satan. Conquer it for the glory of God. Don't you see the connection? Assurance and the war and the battle that you're in. This is the turning of the corner. This is what you're supposed to say. Let me say this quickly. This is kind of a side note here. For some of you who struggle and you struggle and you struggle... With this lack of assurance of salvation. And I mean deep. Talk to you. I love you. But you need to know. And you need to be aware. That this is a tactic of the enemy. No doubt. To halt you from this, this world conquering prayer. This is a tactic of the enemy. Listen to me. I want you to hear me. Not that train whistle. If you struggle with this again and again, you need to hear me. This is a tactic of the enemy to stop you from world conquering prayer. Sin killing, sin killing, get after it, hit your knees in prayer, go after it for the glory of God. This is a tactic of the enemy. Do you hear that? And you see that from that connection in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. So. So this is important for you to understand, okay? This idea of going from assurance that you belong to Him to prayer. And here's why it's important. Because prayer is not for everybody. I say it again. Prayer is not for everybody. Does that statement shock you? If that statement shocks you, I want you to listen to this. Isaiah 59 verse 2. It says, your iniquities, which is a fancy way to talk about sin and wickedness. Your iniquities has separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Your sin has separated you so that He will not hear. Think about the difference in these two verses. Isaiah 59 two. Your sin has separated you so that He will not hear. 1 John 5.14 this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. He will not hear. He hears us. And Jesus takes us from one to the other. Jesus Christ makes the difference to go from one to the other. Think about it. In our sinfulness, we have zero right to approach the living God. And especially to the throne of His grace to get grace and mercy in prayer. We have no right to go there. In fact, the only thing that we deserve from Him in our, in our sin is what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 calls punishment, everlasting, shut out from the presence of God. But Christ Jesus comes. So how do you get from Isaiah 59.2 to 1 John 5.14? Christ Jesus comes and He's our sin bearer. He's our wrath bearer. He takes away our sin and He deals with the wrath of God on our behalf. He makes a way that now we can come into His presence. 1 Peter 3.18 says that. It says Christ suffered once for sinners. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Through Christ Jesus' death on the cross, we can come into His presence and we can come into this place of prayer. Granted to us by Him. So through the blood of Jesus, the door has been kicked wide open for you to go from He does not hear us to He hears us. 1 John 5, 14. And the more you are aware, the more, so, the more 1 John 5, 13 lands on you, that you know that you have eternal life, you know you're a child of God, the more that grips you, the more likely you will be to go into that secret place and commune with your God. 
This promise in verse 14. I want you to notice something in verse 14. This promise launches us into a certain kind, a certain kind of praying. It says there, according to His will. Whatever you ask, anything you ask, according to His will, He hears us. So the, the certain kind of praying there is prayer that is what? According to His will. Now how do you feel when you hear that? When you hear that, how, how does that make you feel? A lot of people don't have good feelings about that. You know, pray, I'll answer your prayers according to my will. And they don't have good feelings about that. Okay, Here, here's some thoughts that might run across some of your minds. Something like this. You feel like this diminishes the glory of God in answering prayer. Because he's not really answering prayer, he's just doing whatever's according to his will. Maybe something like that. Or something like, I feel like this is really restrictive, right? Like he said, he said, whatever you ask according to my will. And he restricts it in. It just, it just feels restrictive. Something feels off about the glory of God and answering prayer in that way. Or, or you might feel like this. Well, I guess that means we're just supposed to throw, off, throw up a bunch of requests and hope a few of them land on his will until it happens. Or maybe you just feel like there's no point in praying at all because God's going to do His will anyway. So these are thoughts that people have. So what I want to do is I want to correct some of those thoughts. I want to correct some of that, that false teaching, that false thinking, okay? Number one, this. This does not diminish the glory of God in answering prayer. Rather, instead of diminishing the glory of God in answering prayer, this puts on display His good, beautiful sovereignty. The sovereignty of God, His good and beautiful sovereignty is put on display when it says, whatever you ask, according to my will, I hear you. And here's what I mean. We've got to remember that God's will is always, God's will is always for our good and for His glory. You hear that? God's will is for our good and for His glory. Perfectly. So, uh, Psalm 18.30 says, ask for God, His way is perfect. His way is perfect. So for God not to do something according to His will is to act in such a way that's not for your good and to act in such a way that's not for His glory. To answer your prayer not according to His will is to answer a prayer that's not for your good and not for His glory. You imagine a child, maybe a son, maybe my son, looking to me and, and, and to his father, he gives a request. He says, Daddy, Daddy, Keely is in trouble. Go help her. She needs help. And I respond to that request and I run because it is according to my will, according to my will that I help my daughter. Now you imagine the other side of that. My son says to me, Daddy, would you feed me rat poison? And I say, absolutely not. That's not according to my will. And some of you might say, well, I never asked for rat poison in prayer. And the reality is, yes, you will. Yes, you will. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. You can pray things that seem so right to you, but the reality is, it's rat poison and leads to death. So praying according to God's will. I want you to think about this. This is not about just throwing up a bunch of prayers and hoping that some of them land on God's will. This is about, this is about us 
Seeking God's will in His Word. We want to know, God, what is your will? We enjoy your will above, far above our own will. We enjoy your will. We want to seek your will in your Word. And God reveals His will to us in His Word. And we burst forth in prayer that you might fulfill it, O oh God. This is what we're talking about. We talk about praying according to His will. This should in no way discourage us from praying. It should not discourage us from praying. Think, think about this. God really and truly accomplishes His will through the prayers of His people. He really does that. James chapter 4 verse 3. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. It does not say, you do not have because it is not God's will. It doesn't say that in James 4 3. It says you do not have because you do not ask. God really and truly, through the prayers of His people, accomplishes His will. He really does that. The call to pray according to God's will. This is like, a, I want you to see it like a, like a glorious call to wartime, wartime, glory to God type praying. In other words, we're not sitting around just praying our own selfish wills, Right? And let me just put that out there, that if you're in Christ Jesus, you're a child of God, and you find yourself over and over just praying these prayers that never seem to be answered, you need to test yourself in that. There should be a question, am I praying according to my own selfish will? Or the prayers that are coming from my chest, are they bubbling out of God's word as he reveals his word to me? He reveals his will, and I pray, God, do it for your glory. Prayers like this, God, conform me to the image of your son. You said you would do it, God. Lord, make me look more like Jesus. God, open my eyes. I'm about to read your word this morning. Open my eyes, God, that I might behold your glory because I know that's what you want. God, kill this sin in my life and kill that sin in my life. God, give me boldness to preach the gospel to my co-workers. You see this example of prayer? This, this opens you up. Pray according to God's will. Opens you up to this wartime glory to God praying. And that's what I want us to move into. And then, and then you have this in verse 14. One of the most beautiful truths ever hit my ear. He hears us. Whatever you ask according to His will. He that's talking about God hears us. That's amazing. Are you assured? As God said, whispered in your ear, you belong to me. And then the thing that comes after that is, you've got my ear. I have inclined my ear to you. Listen, this is amazing. The people, godly people of God have been, they have been amazed about this for centuries. Let me read you a verse in Psalm. 116. Listen to Psalm 116. In verse 1 and 2. Listen. I love the Lord. Because He has heard my voice. And my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me. And therefore I will call upon Him. As long as I live. You see how amazed this person is? You see how amazing the psalmist is? You mean God Almighty would listen to me? Is that right? L let me show you another one. Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verse 6. What happens is, is you, got, you got 
David here. He's in all kind of turmoil and the enemies are coming up against him. The enemies are attacking David. This is happening in this as he's as a, you know, this psalm is a response to that. And he's in trouble and he's in turmoil and he's in danger. And it says in verse six, and in my distress, what did he do? I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God. Listen, he heard my voice from his temple. And my cry came before even to his ears. And then you get this symbolism of how he responds. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundation of the hills quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils. It's as if God is saying, they're messing with one who is mine. He bowed the heavens also and came down. God's response to his children prayed. Think about who God is for him. Think about who God is. Over in Psalm 113 it says, He humbles himself. <laughs> he humbles himself to behold the heavens. We look at the heavens and we go, oh my. I cannot believe how massive and glorious these heavens that declare the glory of God. And for God to even take a glance at it, He must humble Himself because He is massive. He is glorious beyond what we can ever imagine. And listen, He hears us. Psalm 8 when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Listen to Job real quick. Job 25. Listen, listen to Job. Job said it like this. Even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in His sight. In the eyes of God, even the moon and the stars are not impressive to Him, not even in the least bit. How much less man who is a maggot, a son of man who is a worm. He hears us? Did that just say that God Almighty hears us. I, I, I recently, I've been listening recently to some of these things of some atheists, some more famous atheists in these debates and stuff like that. And I've listened to a few of them. And, and what a pattern you see over and over again is these atheists saying, you, know, you people are crazy. This God that, in, I mean, they understand the science that this day, the magnificence of the heavens, the, the, you look through the Hubble, uh, uh, Hubble telescope there and you see the glorious galaxies and you just can't imagine the vastness of the universe. And they say, you think that God cares about you on this little speck of dust called earth? And what they can't see is the glory of God, glory of God in his immensity and yet the glory of God in his minuteness. It's like, I see the cosmos, I glory in the cosmos, and yet, look at the cells that are in our body. Look at the glory of the cells that He's created. And yet, they can't see both. But this is glory to our God, that He is immense beyond measure, more than we can imagine. And yet, He comes down, and He speaks, and He listens to those who are His children. That blows me away. And then look with me at verse 15. 
I want you to let this sweet, sweet promise land on you fresh and let it move you to respond. Listen to this promise in verse 14. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. If we know that He hears us, that God we're talking about hears us in Christ Jesus who belong to Him. He hears, He's assured you. Are you in Christ? He's assured you that you belong to Him. And now He says, you have my ear. And He says, and whatever you ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of Him. I want to show you a few other places in God's Word. I want to tell these promises to land on you fresh. In John 15, verse 7. Listen, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. What are you doing with that promise? Sounds like you pray according to his will. You abide in him, his words abide in you, whatever, whatever you ask, he says it will be done for you. What do you do with that Promise. Back up to chapter 14, verse 13. Listen, same kind of language. Whatever you ask in my name, this is like according to my will. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What are you doing with that promise? James 4, 3, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. What are you doing with this, this promise? Listen to a few more. I just, I just want to read this to you. Listen. Let these land on you fresh. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Words from Jesus. Pray to your Father who is in a secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What do you do with that? Matthew 21, verse 22. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. John 16, 24. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We see it over in Acts chapter 4. It says they cried out to God for boldness to preach his word. In chapter 4, verse 29. In chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And they had boldness to preach his word as the place where they prayed shook. Turn with me to Genesis 18. Go to Genesis 18. I want you to see some examples in God's Word of people praying according to His will and God responding. Genesis 18. God comes to Abraham. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 18 and he's going to make it known to Abraham that he's about to rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. He is about to absolutely destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he's going to make it known to Abraham. And so Abraham begins to the best of his ability. He doesn't know exactly how, but according to the best, the best he knows how, he begins to petition God and cry out to God again and again and again. Look at it in chapter 18, verse 22. Then the man turned away from there and went towards Sodom. 
But Abraham still stood before the Lord. There you got Abraham before his God. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And what we see is God respond to him. And God responds and Abraham keeps going, God, what, what about, what if there's 40 found in the city? Would you still destroy it for them? Would you still, would you not do he said, yeah, I'll do that. Well, what about 30, God? Would you, would you not destroy it if you found 30 righteous there? Would you not destroy it then, God? And he's just interceding and pleading on behalf of that city again and again and again. And what's he standing on? He doesn't know exactly what to pray, but here's what he knows. The judge of all the, judge of all the earth will do right. I know that about him. My judge, the judge of all the earth, will do right. In accordance with what I know, I will cry out to him on behalf of that land. You get into chapter 19 that zones in to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19. So look over chapter 19. I want you to notice something. The angels get there. The angels that are going to be a part of destroying this land get there. And they go to Lot. And they get with a man there named Lot. And when they go to Lot, it says, it says that, that Lot was about to be killed by these men. Some, some other men that were trying to kill Lot. And these angels reached out and grabbed him. Look at it in verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness. And so here they are protecting Lot. Why are they doing that? They're here to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Why are they protecting Lot? Keep reading. You see what's going on with Lot? They tell them that they're about to destroy. They tell Lot, Lot, we're about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. What mercy is coming to Lot that these telling them, Get out of here, I'm about to destroy this place. Verse 16, and while he lingered, so he didn't respond, he just lingers there as he should not do. But while he lingered, the men took hold of Lot's hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. They literally physically grabbed Lot and his family and pulled him outside of the city that they're about to destroy. Why are they showing such mercy to this man? Look with me at verse 27. It zooms back out to Abraham. Remember Abraham was over there praying for the city. Verse 27 says, And Abraham went early in the morning in the place where he had, to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. There's that land that Abraham had pleaded with God for. Again, he doesn't know exactly how to pray. But he prays in accordance with, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And he pleads on behalf of this town. And now he's seeing it there. And it's burning. And look down at verse 29. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain... God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. You get what happened? 
All that mercy that was shown to Lot. This is an example. A man, he doesn't know perfectly how to pray. He didn't even pray specifically for Lot himself. He doesn't know, but he knows. I'm going to pray in accordance with what I know is God's will. He cries out to the living God. He intercedes. And what we know is Lot is shown mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy. And when it comes down to it, God says, that's because I remembered Abraham. I remembered his prayers. Go to Daniel 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1. Listen. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the year of his reign, listen, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So here he is. He's got his nose in the book. Daniel is reading this book that we have. Jeremiah specifically is what he's reading. And as he reads it, he reads the same thing that you can go back and read. And he reads that, wow, we're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. His eyes are open to the will of God through the word of God. And so what does he do? Verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And you go on and Daniel just cries out to God. God has said in your word that you were going to deliver us after 70 years. Deliver us, oh God. Deliver us, oh God. He prays in accordance with God's word. I want you to look at God's response in verse 23. A messenger from God comes to him. And here's what the messenger says to Daniel. Verse 23. Daniel, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. Daniel, when you began to cry out to me in accordance with my will, the command went out in that moment. Listen, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. You're a loved one of God. And, I, and you have my ear. I listen to you. Does this encourage you to pray? So you hear. You have assurance. Bro brothers and sisters in Christ, I see so many in the room. I, some of you don't know, but some I love you people. And, and I know you. And you have this assurance that you belong to Him. And what should that drive you to, you to do? To your knees. To cry out to the living God like Abraham. To cry out to the living God like Daniel. And watch God move. Watch Him stand on His Word when He says, Whatever you ask according to my will, I will do it. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy might be full. Are you encouraged to pray? And last thing, maybe you're unconvinced. Maybe you say, yeah, that's for their time. But what about now? What about in this day and age? Does God still do this? Does God still hear the prayers of the saints now? And let me remind you of something. Yesterday in prayer, I was remembering the pictures. I was remembering the pictures on my phone and the face of little Edvin. You know who that is? 
Starkey's little baby that was prayed for just a moment ago. And suddenly it hit me that God has answered our prayers. It hit me in that moment. I began to weep. Oh God, you answered our prayers. You did that, oh God. We cried out to you. Do you remember that? Gathering around the Starkeys. A particular brother here was burdened over their soul and request that we get around and the people of God burden over the Starkeys and they're hurting over infertility and that's going on. And then God answers that prayer. And about 45 minutes later after I left that time of prayer and weeping and thankfulness, tears of joy over what God had done, I get this text from, from my brother Nick Starkey. He says this, Hey brother, last time I was at church, June 12th, Y'all prayed for Sarah and I dealing with infertility. This Sunday, June 26th, which is today, we're bringing dear baby Edwin with us. Praise the God who hears prayer. And I say amen. Let me give you one more like that. Several months ago, because I want you to think about this. I mentioned these two things because this is now. This is now. So... I wonder if God, I wonder if God still answers prayer like that now. I'm giving you two examples that you could put your eyes on today of God hearing prayer. That's one. And let me give you another. Uh, several months ago, you know, Molly Crouch is, is, is Molly Crouch is laboring in, in uh, abortion ministry. She's up there at the abortion place, evangelizing, crying out to God to save souls, deliver these babies, all these kind of things. And several months ago, she goes up there one morning. She gets, it's impressed upon her soul. She begins to pray, God, let me take one of those girls to the, to the crisis pregnancy center. Let me take one of them. And I pray, God, you save their baby. And she felt, I believe by the Spirit of God, impressed to pray that prayer. And she goes up there to the abortion place. And first person, she puts, she, she puts words in their ears. They say, yeah, I'll go with you. And they go up there. And today... She's hosting the largest baby shower for a delivered and rescued child from death that I think I've ever seen in my life. Praise the living God who hears prayers. So I want you to ask the question. So according to 1 John 5, 13-15, do you belong to Him? Do you know that you belong to Him? And if you do, I encourage you to pray. Cry out to Him because He hears us. He's given us His ear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for truth, for real assurance, God. God, I pray for anyone here that does not have that assurance because they don't know you. God, I pray that they would see you Pray that you would save them. Open their eyes, God, and save them. Save them. Gotta pray for your church. God, help us to be a people that glorifies you by resting in your promises, God, that we belong to you. Fill our hearts, God, with an assurance, God, that we're yours. And I pray, God, you would drive us to our knees. You would drive us to a place of prayer. Make us a people, God, who pray. Who pray, God, and see you glorify your holy name as you answer those prayers for your namesake.
Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.